Could you open up to 2 Samuel? And as you do, it's interesting when you become a pastor, you go to seminary to learn a few things. They, they, uh, they, they make you go through all these classes so you can answer the big, tough puzzles of Christianity. You learn big words. You learn big words like theodicy. You learn how to answer questions like eschatology. When is Jesus coming back? Theodicy is why does God allow evil in the world? So you learn how to answer all of these questions. You learn stuff like what is the clearest sign of the Holy Spirit? Is it tongues? Is it laughing in gold? falling from the sky, you learn how to answer those kind of things because some people believe that. You learn about salvation. What does it mean to be right with God? How does a person become right with a holy God? That's one of the main things you talk about. So then you graduate. They give you a bunch of books. You put them on your shelves. People come into your office and they think you are brilliant. You know, you wait for those questions and you answer them and People leave just being just astounded by your knowledge. But the truth of the matter is, very few people come into your office asking you any of those questions. You better know them when they do ask them, but rarely do people knock on your door to say, hey, Pastor Chris, could you tell me about the tribulation period? Some people do, but very few do. There's one question, though, I think I answer every week, whether it's on the phone or somebody comes into my office. And you know what? Seminary really never trained me to answer this specific question. And here's the question. It's very simple. Why do I have to wait? I think I answer it every week. Why do I have to wait? Pastor Chris, I want to get married. I want a girlfriend. I want a boyfriend. Girls ask me that often. Why do I have to wait? I've been praying about it. and It doesn't happen. Pastor Chris, I love to preach. I get excited about the Bible. I just want to lead people. I'd love to work at a church. I pray about it. It doesn't ever seem to come fruition. Why do I have to wait? Pastor Chris, I hate my job. I hate it. I'm so much more talented, have so much more abilities than this job that I'm placed at. I pray about another job opening or maybe I get a promotion. It doesn't seem to happen. Why do I have to wait so long for anything to happen in my life? Pastor Chris, my car is on the fritz. My house is too small. My stomach's too big. My kids aren't getting it. My neighbor's not getting saved. And I pray nothing happens. Why do I have to wait? How many of you have ever asked those questions? Raise your hand if you have. It's crazy. I ask it probably daily. I feel like I'm always waiting for something good to come my way. Some ship to come in, my dreams to come true. I'm always fighting me. Do you ever just look in the mirror and say, I'm still here, the same guy, the same problems. I'm always waiting. Well, hopefully in our next passage, David is done waiting. I mean, he's been promised to be king. Saul dies, and now's the time he's going to take the throne, right? Nope. Seven and a half more years of waiting. So the title of our message is, we're going to see war, we're going to see peace, but really we're going to see David's incredible patience. So if you can read along with me, 
We're actually going to go from chapter 2 to 5, but I just want to read the first 11 verses of chapter 2. 2 Samuel. Chapter 2, starting with verse 1. After this, meaning after Saul's death, after Jonathan died, after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron, or Ebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Just stop there a second. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jared was preaching, said, I will deal with these many wives of David. I, don't, I can't believe he threw me under the bus like that. I saw it on live TV, or actually tape TV. But I'm not going to deal with David's wives. We'll get to that with Solomon. Solomon had about 900, so I think that's when we need to bring it up. Few two, he had a little problem with that, so that's when we'll bring it up. Verse 3, David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, it's hard to say. Let's just call him Ish. You'll see why in a second. Ish, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months, so seven and a half years. Let's set the stage. We have a map. Jared likes maps, so I'm giving maps. Here is Israel to the north, and we have Judah to the south. Judah's main city at this time that we're reading is Hebron. There it is right there. To the north, Gilead is where the city of Mahanaim is. And really where Ish, Boseth, set up his rule. This is going to be a, the makings of a split kingdom, not only now, but later on. So let me kind of give you how it's set up. David prayed to God and said, God, should I become king? And God said, yes, go up to Hebron. So David became king of the tribe of Judah. And so he is just in charge of the yellow area for seven and a half years. His general, we're going to find out about in a minute, is named Joab. Joab was his nephew. Joab was bad news. Joab was bloodthirsty, mean, manipulative, but he was fiercely loyal to David. To the north, we have this King Ishbosheth, King Ish. Actually, I was talking to Andrew, and Andrew said, Is that a typo, King Ish? Is he King Ish? Like he's a little bit of a king? And actually, the truth of the matter is, yeah, he's. 
Imagine Ishbosheth, he's kind of like got a backbone of butter and sour cream. He's just a wimpy little guy, one of Saul's younger kids. His main general is Abner. In fact, Abner is on par with Joab, a good competitor with Joab. In a way, Abner's the one that said, set up King Ish. He's the puppet master of King Ish. He put him in place. This is the stage that set, this is the beginning of a civil war that's going to go on for seven and a half years. After David dies and Solomon dies, it picks back up, but that's the split. Most of the tribes, however, in the north, Asher, um, you have on Gilead's side, Gad, Manasseh, Issachar, main tribes are to the north, that's Israel. Before we go on into these chapters, I just want to stop and I want to think for a second about David's mindset at this time. What was David thinking? He just got done running from Saul for 10 years in the desert. He was hiding in caves, living in the rock cliffs, southern Israel and Judah. So Saul is finally dead. Don't you think the country would be his? Don't you think it would be handed over to him? But no. He's got to wait seven and a half more years to get the whole shooting match. He only gets the south. What do you think he was thinking? Here's what I think he was thinking. I think he's thinking, God, why do I have to wait? Number one, you gave me all these incredible promises. What about all those promises? 20 years before he was king of Judah, probably around 10 or 12 years old, he was anointed by Samuel. Remember Saul made some terrible decisions. God said, Saul, I'm done with you. Went to Jesse. Jesse, you have a son? Looked at all his sons. Looked at the youngest son who's out with the sheep named David, and they anointed him with oil. He's going to be the king. That was 20 years before this. David was also given a strong assurances from Jonathan and Saul himself that once they're done, he's going to be the king. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. This is Jonathan's assurance to him. Gave him his word. 1 Samuel 23, verse 17. So Jonathan says to David, Do not fear, because his dad was chasing him, Saul was chasing him in the desert. So he says to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. So he's saying, don't worry, David, you'll be king. Even my dad knows this. Go to chapter 24. Next chapter over, verse 20. Saul himself is talking to David after David spared his life. Verse 20, and he says, now behold, I know, he's talking to David, I know you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. So here's David. Saul's dead. He was promised by Jonathan and David, I know you're going to be king, and he's not. Why has he got to wait? And then if I was David, I would be like, man, I, I suffered a long time. I was being hunted for 10 years. I, hey, I killed Goliath. Man, Saul gave me his daughter, and he gave me his daughter after he did that weird thing where I had to get all those foreskins. That was kind of a weird deal. That's kind of strange. He was, wasn't he deserving? I mean, he dodged two of Saul's spears, tried to kill him. 
If I was David, I'd be like, I suffered enough, haven't I? Don't I deserve this? I think these seven and a half years of David where he wasn't allowed to be the king over everybody showed his moral character more than any other period in his life. He never demanded the throne. Not one time. Never. And the reason I say that is because many of us in here, we will quit on the drop of a hat. People look at us the wrong way. Or if we feel mistreated, we'll quit our job, we'll leave our church, some will leave their marriage, friendships. We'll play the martyr role if we aren't treated the way we think we deserve to be treated. Some of us will, man, we will uh, we'll be even mad at God if he doesn't answer our prayers after a week. God, I prayed about that yesterday. Where's the answer? David waited seven and a half and add about 20 more to that. 27 years. Man, if God doesn't answer my prayer in a year, I start crying in the bathroom. I'll be honest with you, I'm a wimp. So do you, though. Look at what David says in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is his psalm of waiting. And here's the last two verses of Psalm 27. And listen to what he says. He says, I believe. That means in my heart, I know that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Do you believe these things? Do you believe that because you are a believer, you, act, you sing this song? I was, I was looking at the words up there as you were singing. Um, the old is gone, the new has come. What you complete is completely done. Then it says this, we're heirs of Christ. Do you, like to me, do you believe that? that that's bizarre. That means I am a, I am, I am given his throne. I'm going to be changed. I'm going to be a ruler of the world with him. Do you believe that? Then wait. Here's a, after reading this, here's a conviction I have. I believe the strength of your faith, that means the genuineness, the realness of your faith, is directly tied to the persistence of your patience. See, we, we believe, I think the way the Christian culture is, a, people who have real faith see things happen. Man, they see all kinds of miracles happen. I almost believe it's the opposite. A person who has real faith, even when they don't, see things happen, they hang in there and they believe. Well, the reason really why David had to wait is because there is a man that wouldn't wait. His name was Abner. If we go back to 2 Samuel, you'll see him here in chapter 2, verse 8. And uh, is Ben Rivard in the audience? I apologize to you. Somebody said that looks exactly like him. So, uh, if Ben... <laughs> I didn't mean it to be that way, but I've seen that face when I bring my car up and it needs to be fixed. He gives me that look. Anyhow, but this, is, this guy is supposed to represent Abner. Ben Rivard's on our, uh, he's on our security team, so you might want to be careful out in the hallways. Anyhow, Abner couldn't wait. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took, meaning he strongholded Ishbosheth 
the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim and made him king. So he was the one behind the scenes that propped up Ishbosheth. One thing about Abner I didn't tell you, he's Saul's first cousin. So King Saul's dad was Abner's uncle. They were first cousins. And I can imagine Abner, and here's what I think he's thinking. You know what? That throne is rightfully our family's. who's in my cousin's hand, and I'm not giving it to no son of Jesse. It's rightfully ours. It's been in our family for a long time now, and we're not just giving it over. That's kind of the way we are. If something's in our possession, somehow we believe we deserve it and it's ours. And so when God wants to take something from you, it's hard to hand it over. It's hard to hand over job titles, positions, things, because they're mine. What if God asks you to give it to somebody else? No, it's mine. I've had it my whole life. I'm not giving it. It's really interesting how even people, the soil farmers, that's, their, that's always been their land. It will always be their land. Isn't this our Father's world? We sing that song. This is my Father's world. We sing it really pretty like that. You can sing it so pretty, a tear will come from my eye. This is my Father's world. And you smile to your person sitting there. Oh, lest me ever forget. Those nice old English words really make it good. But then we go home and somebody wants something. No, that's mine. Weren't you just singing, this is my father? No, that's mine. It's rightfully mine. He didn't want to give up his role as top general, so he puts King Ish, place of his dead cousin, he entrenches himself. I think secondly... What he was thinking was this, whatever is the cost, I'll pay it so you don't take it away from me. I'm going to kill, I'm going to manipulate, and I'm going to get it. I want to show you what starts happening. Starting in verse 12, he's going to start this, what I'm going to call the dominoes of impatience. And I'm going to call it the dominoes of impatience because really from this chapter, chapter 2 until the end of chapter 4, it's going to be nasty, dirty, rotten, like a spider web of problems, all because Abner doesn't want to wait. He wants it. It's mine. Look at verse 12. Watch how crazy this is. Chapter 2. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. So they left, and they went basically southwest into the city called Gibeon. There's a big there's a big retention pool. You can actually look it up in history books right now. They have found it. It's kind of like a giant cistern where they'd gather water. And so they traveled down there, him and some of his men. And then it says, watch what it says in verse 13, And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the Pool of Gibeon. So they traveled from Hebron and went north. So these two, the, the north and the south armies, met at this pool. One sat on one side, it says in verse 13, and one sat on the other side. Verse 14, And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Meaning, let these guys fight it out. Whoever wins gets the country. Verse 15, Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve and the servants of David. So twelve went at it. And each caught his opponent by the head, so each guy took the opponent by the head 
and took the sword and put it in there and they all died together. It's a weird story. 24 guys, guys die right away and in verse 17 and the battle was very, that started the civil war and it didn't stop until chapter 5 which is seven and a half years of sheer madness and confusion. Basically, if you go down the dominoes, the next thing that happens is Joab's three brothers start chasing Abner. He's got a real fast brother, and his name's Asahel, and man, he can tear it up. And Abner's running, and Asahel's catching up to him, and he says, you better, better turn around, turn around, don't chase me anymore. And he doesn't. So Abner turns, takes the spear, and thrusts it Joab's brother's gut, and he dies right there. And this just exacerbates the, just the fury between the north and the south. And, and uh, basically, Abner knows that, so he goes to this hill. Go ahead and hit that. It's called the Hill of Ammon. He realizes this is getting out of hand. He tells Joab, all right, let's just stop fighting. Let's, let's have peace. And Joab's like, all right, let me go bury my brother. So he goes to bury his brother. Abner goes home, and he's kind of angry at Ishbosheth and wants to take over. So what he does is he sleeps with King Ish's dad's concubine, Saul's concubine, to kind of gain more power, which makes him kind of mad, the king mad. And so the king's mad at him. So then he goes to David and says, let's just strike up a peace accord. David says, all right, let's strike up a peace accord. Joab hears about it, tells Abner, I'd like to speak to you outside. Abner says, yeah, what's up? And he plunges a knife in his gut to Get him back for his brother's death. It's just crazy. And then meanwhile, back up north, these two generals come up, and while Ish is, King Ish is sleeping, they kill him, decapitate and bring his head to David. It's nuts. It's crazy. It's what I call it, the dominoes of impatience. And the truth of the matter is, most of your troubles in your life have been caused by you making rash decisions. Impetuous decisions. I want to show you something really interesting. Go to 1 Chronicles. That's two books to the right. You have Kings and then Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Chronicles is um, it's going to start following actually Samuel, starting with David's life. It's from the perspective of the Levites. And they're going to tell a what's called a concurrent historical account with Samuel. That's for those of you that like big words, concurrent historical accounts of Samuel with a Levitical understanding. You learn that, you go to seminary, you'll pass. Just say that. All right, go to 1 Chronicles 10. Look at verse 13 and 14. So Saul, talks about Saul. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord. And that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. Pastor Jared talked about that two weeks ago. But here's the key, verse 14. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Meaning, when he made his decisions, he never went before God. He just made decisions. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Abner, his first cousin's doing exactly the same thing. He just makes decisions without seeking the Lord. And I dare say, most of our problems arise from the same thing. Spent terrible spending choices because we don't ask God to give us wisdom. We enter bad relationships. 
We enter sexual relationships because we don't seek the Lord. We respond quickly without, we want without waiting. We get in fights or, do you ever have those words you wish you could get back or that picture you posted on Facebook, you're like, oh, why did I put that on there? Or, or somebody said something on Facebook and you're mad, so you do a quick answer and it's like, oh no, <laughs> that's terrible. Then you get all these hate Facebook shots back and you're, I'm never going on it again. Well, that's because you were impatient. Why are we so impatient? Why do we need things right now? Why? Why do we have to be the first ones to the movie? I saw, I was the first one to see Spider-Man. So what? I'm going to see it in a month for 50 cents. Who cares? Who Really, who cares? Who cares? Who cares if you're the first one who's been there and done that? Who cares? Seriously, who cares? Did you ever get into, you know, you're driving in traffic and all of a sudden you come up to, it's congestion and the left lane's moving faster than the right, so you sneak in. And then the left lane all of a sudden stops and then the right lane tears off and you're furious. Every day, every day. Tom, I'm with you. You're the guy that goes like that as you pass by me. And then you get there two minutes ahead of the other guy. It's crazy. Why are we all in such a hurry? Where, are we, where do we need to be so quick? The only place I really want to be is heaven. And I can have it right now. I don't know. It's, it's weird how we're always in a hurry. I don't, I don't know why. I really don't know why. As told the first service, I read this brilliant article by this lady one time. She said, one day I was driving down the road and I realized there's, there's cars that are in front of me. And you know what? There's also cars that are behind me. Isn't that brilliant? It's the most brilliant, if you let it sink in, it's brilliant. It is. Yeah. I didn't learn that. Oh, man, that was deeper wisdom, that there's always cars in front of me and there's always cars behind me. My dad would say it like this. There ain't a horse that can't be rode and there ain't a man that can't be thrown. Did you ever hear that one? But you kind of got to talk like that when you say it. Oh, I get it now. Anyway, let's keep going. The whole point is, why do we always have to be the best, the first, the fastest? Because it doesn't mean anything, because there's always somebody that's ahead of us and behind us. Well, what you have from chapter 2 through chapter 4 is just chaos because of impatience and impetuousness and sin. Then chapter 5 is the payoff. And I've got to tell you, patience has amazing payoff. Amazing payoff. And we need to start realizing that patience is really the means to get what you always want. It's incredible. One uh, philosopher put it like this. Patience may be bitter, but its fruit sure is sweet. Another one wrote, He who is a master of patience, he who is a master of patience, is a master of everything else. And it's so true. In David's case... He was willing to wait another seven and a half years. And because he did two enormous things happen. Number one, we find it in verses one and two. God's word proved itself true. Listen to what it says. Verse, uh, chapter five, verse one. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone 
in your flesh. Why didn't they say this before? Like, if I was David, I'd like, oh, takes a long time to get there. He doesn't say anything. Verse 2, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who let us out and brought us to Israel. No, again, I'd be like, David would be like, no kidding. No kidding. But he doesn't even say that. And they say, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. For some reason, they all of a sudden realized, God foretold this. His word is true. But the reason why they could see it is because David was patient. And they came to that realization. God's word is always true. In fact, I was... uh, the first service, I brought people to Psalm 119, but I want to bring you to one that's even more shocking to me. It's Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. The reason why I didn't bring the first service is I don't think they're smart as the second service and they couldn't find Zechariah. So I'll let you get there. Don't tell them that. Zechariah chapter 1. It's Z-E-C-H. Ariah. Zech. Ariah. Chapter 1. And he writes the people in verse 4 through 6. Actually, let's start in verse 3. It says, Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. So God is speaking. When God speaks, his word is coming forward. And then, return, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways, from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me. So he's saying, don't be like your your forefathers. When they heard the word of God, they just ignored it. They didn't think anything of it. Verse 5, your fathers, who are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? And that's a rhetorical question. They didn't listen to the word of God. The word was spoken. They ignored it. And guess what? They all died. But verse 5, but my words didn't. They keep going. They'll prove themselves out. If you're impatient, you may miss the word from becoming true in your life. But if you're patient, it'll come true. If we go back to 2 Samuel verse 3, basically because of God's, uh, David's patience, all, everybody testified to the greatness of David. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So really, basically, you could say it like this. The fruits, the patience, it's not just God's word comes true, but people start seeing and believing truth in your life. It's amazing. Patience gives you credibility. It really does. There is something about a person, and you'll know what I'm talking about. There's something about a person that isn't always chasing every fad every trend, every new thing. The the person who has convictions and stands on them, even when nobody else does, after a while, that person becomes what I would call a man of integrity or a woman of integrity. You notice them. And usually you'd say about them, they are trustworthy. They're believable people. They really believe what they say. I trust them. And usually it's because they're patient. They hang in there. To me, it's, it's strange how quick these days people quit. It's really odd. I've been here 
I've been here 20 some years, and I can't tell you how many youth pastors and senior pastors I've seen in our association leave the church. And some of it's the pastors who just can't take anymore, but a lot of it's the congregation who aren't satisfied and they want a new guy. I don't like this guy. Let's get another guy. But the person who hangs in there, the person who hangs in there even when they are mistreated or they suffer under indignity and they keep going, they will outlast the quitters. It's incredible. And when you outlast the quitters, you become the leader. You become the oldest one. Mike, i got to be honest with you, I still feel like I just started here at this church. I remember when I started, and Mike doesn't mind when I share this. Mike said, who are you? I want your job. I'm like, man, the Buckners, I'll never outlast the Buckners. I'm still hanging there, Mike. You're still here, though. You're looking older than me. But we're, we're the, you and I now, you and I, Mike, you and I are two of the oldest guys here now. Isn't that kind of sad? It's crazy. It's really crazy. We used to run the youth group, and now we are... We need canes to get it. It's crazy. But the beauty of staying long is people start believing you're trustworthy. You're rewarded when you are not impetuous and impatient. As I was going through this, I had a question. Why was David so patient? Because I would have been frustrated after seven and a half years, after the 20 before. Actually, somebody said that math doesn't, that's not right. Because if you read here, in verse 4, it says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. Well, they're counting from when he started in southern Judah. So really, he was anointed by that about the age of 10 and 12. He killed Goliath probably the age of about 16. And so he was waiting for the throne a long time. Why was he so patient? Here's, here's what I found. David was so patient because what he was promised was not what he ultimately wanted. He's promised the kingship, but that isn't... I would say that was a penultimate goal. Penultimate means it's not the highest. He, had, he wanted something even more. And because he was waiting, he had that thing that was even more important, he could wait on the littler thing. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, we already read from it about where he said, wait on the Lord... But look at what it says at the beginning. This is David's psalm of patience, and he gives you the reason why he's patient. Psalm 27. He wanted something else more. Starting in verse 1, The Lord is my light. He's my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Why? Why will he be confident? Why will he wait? Why is he not impatient and impetuous? Because of verse 4. He wants one thing. One thing have I asked. This is what I want. This is what David's saying. That I... This is what I'll seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's all I really want. God is enough for David. He says it in verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says, do your face, O Lord, do I seek. Why can he hang in there even when he doesn't get the king 
ship because all he really wants is God. For David, God was enough. I'd ask the question for you, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? What if you never get everything you ever wanted following Christ? Is he still enough? Is Christ enough while you wait for that certain someone to come into your life? What if you never get married? Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough even though you're stuck at the same job? Is Christ enough even though you have that same health condition? Is Christ enough even if you can't lose that extra 15 pounds that seems like everybody else on the internet can lose? I still have it. Is Christ enough? When Christ is enough, when Christ is enough, you can wait. When Christ is enough, those things you claim to be needs, man, I need that, they start becoming, I'll be okay without it. They'll become, eh, it's all right. I don't need it. Contentment is achieved only when you honestly see Christ as enough. I believe that is why David could wait 20 years and then add seven and a half more before King because he really only wanted one thing. And he could have it. Jared, I'm going to ask your team to come on up. And as they do, I have one more question for you. We live in an advertising world that says, what are you waiting for? Go get it. What are you waiting for? can be yours today. What are you waiting for? And I would say really the Christian version of this is what are you not waiting for? What are you too impetuous about? Impatient. Wringing your hands because you can't have it. And I'm mad at God. What are you not waiting for? That's really the question.